I know I ain't got just 30 minutes left of message here, so. <laughs> Trying to decide what we should do here. Yeah. Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, Eric had started talking to us about love. Started talking about how we need to grow up in love. Amen. Does anybody besides me need to grow in love? Yes. Just mostly me. I <laughs> Dude, you're right. I mean, seriously. Yeah. There's a, there's a trail of bodies, I think, in my wake. <laughs> it's okay, though. God loves me just the way I am. And he gets me, and I'm happy about that. <laughs> but we are supposed to be growing up in love. It's, it's probably one of the most significant ways that we're supposed to be growing. And it's probably the most significant way we're failing as the church. I mean, Jesus said, you know, listen, there's, there's one way they're going to know who my people are. And it's going to be the way you love each other. That's it. Not about how, you know, political you are, not about how cool or hip you are, whether you, you know, are got the biggest buildings or, you know, not even how you treat, you know, uh, feed the poor. And I realize that there's love in that. But there's this thing of how we, we, we conduct ourselves in the world. I mean, how we carry ourselves is so important. And it's like, you know, I don't know why, what it is or why or how, but we get, um, man, it's like we just, we're just so easily just slip into those ruts of not being patient. I mean, that's what Eric was hitting on the last time, wasn't it? Patience. I mean, how many on your way home were yelling at people in the other cars? Me, like you idiot, get out of my way. <sighs> you know, and, and it's so it's like I'm 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 just trying to go. God, really, seriously, what is it? I mean, what? Why? Why are we not doing well at love? Why are we really we hold grudges, man? And I, oh, and I I, I go to Facebook and. I'm just, it sickens me sometimes when I read what you guys are writing. And I'm saying you guys, okay? I'm not going to be general about this because I'm, I'm just friends with people in this church. <laughs> I got a couple friends outside of this church. <laughs> but I'm watching what we say out there, how we're putting ourselves out there. And some of it's gross. Some of it's really just doesn't have anything to do with love. It has to do with your opinion. It has to do with what you think the world thinks. And I know I got it in me too, man. I think those things sometimes. But that's where it counts. And I'm not saying we got to stop being real about how we feel about things. And, but let's be like really real. You know, let's get out of... 
the, the, the earthly perspective that we're living in all the time. And let's, let's go where Ephesians says we are. Ephesians says you are in heaven right now. You are seated there. That's where your perspective is supposed to be coming from. Not in hell. Not even on the earth. Your eyes should be looking at the whole situation you're in from heaven's vantage point. That's where we should be posting our Facebook posts from. This is where tweets should be coming from. Tweets from heaven. (laughs) So I'm just, I'm like, God, seriously, help. (laughs) Help me. Help me. Because we're losing the culture war. Because we don't know how to love. We are going to learn. We are going to learn. I was... uh, reading uh, about a, a, a ministry. It's okay. We love him. He always was high maintenance. <laughs> I've known that child since he was in his mama's belly. I love him. So I was reading about the, from this organization that studies church development and growth, and they were hosting a seminar, and they were asking um, their participants, What's, what do you believe to be the greatest barrier to church growth? And they started to get answers like um, power struggles, arguments, and fighting, traditionalism. Um, narrow-mindedness, lack of trust, overworked leadership. And as they they were kind of shouting out these answers, the, the, the host of the seminar said, can I offer this? Can I, I'd like to summarize all of that into three words. Lack of Just about everyone said, yeah, that's, that's it. And you know, the irony of that is that in spite of the dominance of the theme of love in our music, in our movies, cheap romance novels, the lack of love is actually the greatest illness of our time. And yet... There's hardly any other subject that's emphasized as much as love. And you know, 
here's some stat, sad statistics. You know, loneliness will soon be the most widespread malady in Western society. In fact, there's some recent surveys that show that a quarter of the population suffers from chronic loneliness. And it's one of the major causes of suicide. In some countries, about one of every two marriages ends in divorce. And, you know, most of us are looking for harmonious relationships. But, you know, here in the United States, um, one marriage is breaking down every minute, 24 hours a day. You know, the number of mental illnesses has, has really reached some really shocking proportions in recent years. In fact, every fifth patient who consults a general practitioner suffers either from a mental disorder or a physical symptom resulting from mental causes. And the leading uh, psychiatrists are telling us that the lack of love is the main cause of serious neurotic disorders. Now, I realize that, you know, sad as these statistics are, they, they don't reveal even the full extent of the suffering that's experienced in our society. You know, they can't express what it really means to have unfulfilled hunger for love. And so I'm asking the question, God, where are the churches that can satisfy this hunger for love? Where are the Christians who reflect God's love in such a way that God's healing power can actually be experienced in a tangible way? Now listen, I, I realize it is really easy for us to criticize the secular concept of what love is. But before we as Christians um, start to criticize the world's false concept of love, we've got to take a really careful consideration of how loving we, the people of God, are. And really how accurate our concept of what love really is. We have to ask ourselves the question, how, how is it possible for a church to be so undeveloped in its ability to love that it actually cultivates sometimes the very disease it was originally created to cure? I think the answer to that is because massive segments of the church have been uh, influenced by misconceptions of what love really is. And so what happens is people, you know, they, they firmly believe that their personal understanding of love is exactly what the Bible teaches. When in, in reality, they've become so accustomed to the false concepts that when they read the Bible, they read them into 
the Bible. So whenever they see the word love in Scripture, they perceive it as a confirmation of their previously shaped view. Is everybody tracking with me? Everybody nods your head. So for most of us, the term love is so strongly associated with inner images that whenever we come across the word, those images automatically surface in our, in our mind. And I think you'll agree with me that it's not an exaggeration to say that Hollywood probably has a stronger influence in our understanding of love than the creator of the universe. So here's two misconceptions about love that I want to share today that I believe is really wrecking it for us. It's wrecking it in our relationships. It's wrecking it in our display of authentic God-shaped love. Here's the first one. I believe the first misconception that we have about love is that love is always soft. I believe that this has really become the standard understanding of love in everyday usage. And so, when this misconception is translated into our Christian experience, what happens is it reduces love to a very cheap version of grace. Does anybody believe that? You know, and I, I know it's true that grace is an integral part of love, but here's the thing. Love cannot be reduced to grace for good reasons. You see, all of the characteristics of love is covered, or all the characteristics, sorry, of grace is covered by love. But grace doesn't cover all the aspects of love. Do you see the difference here? And so what we have is we have this secular romantic notion of what love really is, what we think it is. But, but what happens is, is, is we've got this formed idea of what this secular uh, romantic notion of love is, things like tough love, or confronting people in truth is unimaginable. Instead, we, we believe that love is it's always friendly, it's always nice, it's always sentimental. And so the end product is an exclusively soft friendliness that no longer communicates what real love is. Because it declines now to help people fight sin. It declines to help people fight error in their lives. And seriously, I mean, if we think about it, we all know that the Christian life isn't just all about being nice and friendly and tender. I mean, in Scripture, we read about truth. We read about justice. We, we read about hard measures in order to help people mature. But we also read that God is loving, even that He is 
love. So how do we bring those two messages together? I think the most frequent solution is that we continue to use the term love, but only in reference to its soft and friendly side. So then we say things like, well, God is love, but he's also just. Or, or we have to minister to people in love, but also in truth. You see, we have, to, we have to be critical of those kinds of statements. It has to be criticized. Because here's what those things suggest. It suggests that, that justice and truth are almost the opposite of love. And I want you to know that's biblically flawed. Can someone say amen? amen? All right, now this side, say amen. amen. Now just the front half, say amen. amen. And now the back half. <laughs> now every other person, go ahead, count yourselves off. All the ones and the t- you go first. You see, love is the very nature of who God is, right? Just as grace is an indispensable aspect of love, so are truth and justice. Truth and grace can be at times in tension with one another, but that is never the case with truth and love. Do you see the difference? Truth and grace can seem like they're kind of... But truth and love are never separated. Love that bypasses truth would no longer be love. In fact, that would be diametrically opposed to Paul's statement that love rejoices in what? Everybody say it. Love rejoices in truth. Truth. So that's what I think is the first misconception. Now, here's the second one. It's not as big deal, but it's still a deal. And I see this on Facebook a lot. Here's the second misconception about what love means. If you really love me, then you must be an enemy of my enemies. If you really love me, then you got to hate who I hate. You got to come to my cause and fight with me against this person's comment. And so the second misconception, it begins at the other end of the spectrum, right? And it's, and it's found in the groups that stress almost exclusively the justice and truth side of things. And it's, you know, it's really normal to find believers whose views and traditions and practices are really very different than ours. And it's also normal to perceive some of those individuals as maybe opponents. I mean, we're not here there so bad now, but man, I tell you what, 
20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, denominationalism was a big deal. And it still is in some of the older people. I thank God we've been breaking that wall down. It's been part of our mission at New Covenant to just bulldoze that stupid thing. Amen. We love Baptists and Foursquareans and United Methodists and Church of Christers and Catholics and Presbyterians. I mean, sometimes we think it's easier to love the world than a, a Christian at another church. We love the lesbians, but not the Presbyterians. You know? Hey, you abuse alcohol and beat your children? Great, come to church. You don't believe in speaking in tongues? Well, you are no good to me. So sometimes we see those individuals as opponents. But here's what cannot be accepted is, is the idea that in order to prove our love for those people who are being harassed or misunderstood, in order to prove our love for them, that some Christians insist that we have to adopt all of their enemies. Oh, teenagers, listen. She's your BFF today, she's not tomorrow, and now all the, f the lines are drawn. We got to end it. Revivalists, revivalists, look at me. I'm talking to you, high schoolers, junior highers. Seriously, you can change this generation. Stop living this way. Love everyone. The geeks, the nerds, the dweebs, the dorks, the preps, the jocks, the hoods, the punks. I just saw Ferris Bueller's day off, so she. All those people think Ferris is a righteous dude. You are. It's okay, Eric. Here's the thing, you know. The underlying assumption is usually always the same. If you really love me, you must be an enemy of my enemies. And I want you to know this thinking is so widespread sometimes among Christians that it is perceived to be one of the main hindrances to worldwide evangelism. Now, I'm not suggesting that each group and, and their understanding of truth stop advocating for it. Okay, God meets every one of us for, to, to the degree that our faith will go with him. Do you understand what I'm saying? If your faith doesn't get you to, to tongues, God still loves you. If your faith says, you know what, I can be sprinkled and I don't have to be submerged for baptism, God still loves you. God meets people where their faith will take them. And so I don't go telling Baptists, you got to quit this and that, and I don't tell my Presbyterian friends, hey, you need to think like I think. I try to love 
them. And then they realize I'm not a freak. Because they know I'm from this church. But if I went into every ecumenical situation trying to promote my agenda, because I live at a higher level than you, well, come on. The Holy Ghost is coming in. Yes, it does. Every one of them. Every single one. So we, everybody, we, we, we have to allow people to advocate the truth that they are walking in. So let's look at 1 John chapter 4 because I, I want to look at the truth. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18 says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Say that with me. God is love. Verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Because why? Say it. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Now, in this letter from John, we find a statement that is a completely new concept in the history of religion when he said it. Brand new. Never heard this before. God is love. You have no idea how radical that was. The uniqueness of this concept becomes clear the moment we start to try to apply this to non-biblical religions. Right? How about Zeus is love? Jupiter is love. How about Brahma is love? It didn't work. That's why this is radical. These descriptions, they don't make any sense. So the truth that God is love is not only central to understanding the very nature of who God is, but also to understanding what the essence of love is. See, the Bible does not present love as merely one of God's characteristics. Like, God is loving. See, when we say it like that, we go, this is an aspect. This is like one little shiny part on a diamond. And when you look at it, oh, that's pretty. It's not just an aspect. The saying is, God is love. Which means that love is the very nature, it is the very essence of who God is. And since love is God's nature, John could also say, whoever lives in love lives in God. And God in him. Now, if we were to just kind of read these verses superficially... You know, a lot of times we miss the significant difference between a loving God and a God who is love. And so, 
have to say that it's more than just semantics. It's more than just, you know, wording. Oh, it's just the grammar. You know, loving God, God is love. It's not, it's not that, that simple. There's a distinction that's very dramatic. And the consequences of this affect the practical ways in which we go out into the world. How we put into action has everything to do with whether we believe God is loving or God is love. Now, something else we need to to, kind of realize is the Bible never says God is justice. Never says God is power. God is wisdom or God is anger. Now, Listen, it certainly speaks about God's justice. We can read all about God's power, his wisdom. And even in the New Testament, we can learn about his anger. But all of those are just characteristics of who God is. But we cannot be confused that those things are his nature. Is everybody still tracking? Everybody just smile the biggest smile you've ever smiled. I like that. That was good. Any over here? Smilers? Mason, I'm going to have to separate you from those two girls if you can't smile at me right now. Smile. Oh, goodness. All right. I love you. Smile real big. Yeah. See, you're all so beautiful when you smile. See, all those things, they're just characteristics of who God is. God loves justice. God reveals his power. And he governs the world through wisdom. And sometimes he demonstrates his anger. But he is love. Love is not just one of the many traits in God's character that alternately kind of move to the foreground and then to the back. And, you know, it just shifts around. Am I loving today or am I mad? You know, how did God wake up on the bed today? Is he get up on the wrong side? (laughs) We all laugh, but that's how we feel. We live that way. We think that way. God's very nature is love. And from there, from his nature comes out justice, power, wisdom. And even his anger flows from his love. And I know that's confusing. God's anger even comes from his love and nothing else. So when we define love, we have to remember, we have to constantly burn this in our head. If we're going to define love, we have to remember, God is love. Say it again. God is love. This means that the only way we can know what love is all about is by knowing God himself. Say, it's the only way. It's the only way we can know what love is. 
and how he dealt with people throughout the Bible. Now, again, most of us, though, we, we, we arrive at our understanding of God kind of the opposite way. I mean, the sequence usually goes like this. We begin with kind of our particular understanding of what love means, shaped by Hollywood, secular romantic notion, whatever you call it. So we have that first. Then we get a Bible and we read in John, God is love. And then finally, then we go, oh, I get that. So then I take my frame, my paradigm of love, and I go, oh, that's who God is. That's how most of us have come to that conclusion. So in other words, we're defining God in our terms of our own previously conceived concepts of love. Now, what we should do is define the terms in what the Bible teaches us about love, right? Because here's what happens if, if we stay there, if we, we, we stick to that kind of how I came to figure out who God is. If we go through, uh, you know, love is soft and you hate who I hate, and then God is love, so, you know, God hates people, too, that are sinners, and, and you know, and, but he, he, if he does anything in my life besides just tell me I'm great, then I don't know who God is, and then... If we, if we live that way, what happens is our concept of love remains immature. It becomes that Hollywood version. And then what happens is God becomes a version of Hollywood as well. So in the end, we, we wind up with an unreal God. You know, it's been said that in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and then man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. So if we want to know how to define love, we have to study how God put love into action. The essence of biblical love is that we give, we do what God did. God expresses his love towards us. And when he does that, he doesn't just give us stuff. Oh, if you love me, I, I need a new car, I need a new iPod, I need a new boyfriend, I need a new girlfriend, I need this, I need that. If you loved me, you would be sugar daddy to me. See, see when God expresses his love, he doesn't just say, here's stuff. When God expressed love in the highest form of ever expressing love, what did he give? He gave himself. He gave himself. So the essence of biblical love is that we give ourselves away. And you know what? This isn't easy. That's why we haven't done so well. Because there's a really high price to be paid. But you know what? At the same time, it's the key to experiencing life. A life that's fulfilling and challenging, full of joy. 
You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, he says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you have become so dear to us. This, my friends, is the true application of what love is. Giving our lives away. So this is why we've got to start digging in to 1 Corinthians 13. Discovering the very nature of who God is. God is patient. God is kind. God keeps no records of wrong. We have to learn to come into agreement with Hebrews chapter 12. 5 and 6, it says, God disciplines and rebukes those he loves and accepts as sons and daughters. So, are you ready to declare something? Stand up. I'm going to just walk you through some more. Eric did some during worship, by golly. We're just going to be just a declaring bunch of people today. Seriously, though, if you'll take this serious and not just go, how many more until I go? How long will he drag this out? If you'll do this, something will come off of you today. If you will really seriously take this into consideration, I think the atmosphere of your home might change. You might be able to carry this to your job. And instead of figuring out how little you can give away, you start figuring out how much I can impart. Everybody ready? All right, say this. I renounce the lie. That love is always soft. I renounce the lie of Hollywood's version of love. I renounce the lie that my friends show me love when my enemies become their enemies. I repent of projecting my understanding of love onto God. I repent of being selfish in love. I repent of accusing you, Lord, of not loving me well. Mm. We're going to say that again. I repent of accusing you, Lord, of not loving me well. I forgive my family. My friends, my leaders, for not loving me well. I forgive myself for not loving myself or others well. 
I cancel their debts. And I seek only to measure my love by the love of Christ. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to reveal the true meaning that God is love. I release you, God, to be the full expression of love in my life. And I ask you, Father, to make me a shining example of your very nature, which is love. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, give the Lord some praise. You just did spiritual warfare, okay? Just kind of cleared the atmosphere over your life if you did that with your heart. Now walk in this as we continue to go here and we learn more about love and growing up. Amen. Will you do that? Amen. Well, Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you. We just say thank you. God, you are love. Oh, God, you are love. And God, we just say, in your image, you've created us. And God, manifest it more and more now. Help us to figure out how to give ourselves away, God. Help us to figure out how to give ourselves away. We thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. We'll have the altar team come up if you want some extra prayer.